So let's look at Psalm 13 and go ahead and read it. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd open our hearts this morning to your word, that you'd help us to see what uh, I think, Lord, we have all been through. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to see how you dealt with David here and that how you can deal with us in times of trouble and times of trial. Open our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we were to look at the psalm, it's pretty easy to divide it into three parts, verses 1 or one and 2, or what I call howling, where David expresses his feelings of abandonment. Verses 3 and 4 are what I call yelling, where David prays by screaming at God. And verses 5 and 6, singing, where David remembers. And I have to confess at this point that I've, I've uh, plagiarized uh, Charles Spurgeon in this. Uh, he's dead, so he doesn't care. Um, <laughs> but he it, he preached on this psalm. Uh, in fact, he preached, uh, it was sermon number 2310 that he delivered at the Metropolitan Temple in London. And he called it Howling Turn Into Singing. And so I like that so much, so I borrowed a couple of those words. So uh, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a big believer in plagiarism. Uh, I mean, why... Why do something? Why say something? Why write something that somebody's already written? <laughs> just, uh, just give credit. We're not told what occasioned this psalm. One commentator suggests that it was during the time that Saul was trying to kill David, and he, uh, this commentator uh, referenced 1 Samuel 23. But David vowed again, saying he's speaking to his friend Jonathan, Saul's son. He says, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks... Don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but one step between me and death. We don't know if this is what occasioned the psalm, but it certainly fits. And in this terrible time that David is having, even in this time, he is able to express his hope in the only one who has demonstrated that he's worthy of placing hope in. The superscription of this psalm, uh, the beginning of it, to the choir master of Psalm of David, it's very common. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, that here's this psalm, which is admittedly very depressing. It's uh, heart-wrenching. And yet this psalm was intended to be not only be prayed, but to be sung. It was intended to be sung during times where people were in dire circumstances, where they were overwrought in a trial where people were attacking them. And I, that just reminds me that it's okay. It's okay to go to God when you're struggling. It's okay to go to God when you're wondering where he is. It's okay to go to God when you're angry. God hears you. 
even though it may seem like he doesn't. So, verses 1 and 2, howling, where David expresses his feelings of abandonment. The first two verses, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That phrase, how long, is used in the Psalms a lot. It's very common. And generally, it expresses the idea that whatever has been happening has been going on too long. And it's a plea to God to fix it. It's a plea to God to make it stop. It expresses the sense of, where are you, God? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that out loud? It's used in this psalm more times than in any other psalm. It's used four times here. David is tired of waiting. He's tired of waiting on God to act. He's tired of being ignored and abandoned by God. Have you experienced that? Have you been that tired waiting for God to do something? Look at the terms David uses to express himself here. First he says, will you forget me forever? David senses that God has forgotten him, or perhaps God is ignoring him, which may be worse. At the same time, David, who has known God, he has seen God, he has seen God work, he knows God has delivered him before, He knows God is there. He knows God hears his prayer, yet God is not responding. David's question is, is this going to go on forever? And I suggest that this feeling, this expression of where are you, God, is a near universal condition. Even people who don't know God, people who aren't believers, I think at times in their lives will look up because of the circumstances they're in and go, where's God? But for believers, it's more acute. It's deeper. We know God. We know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We know that he has acted in our lives and that he's answered our prayers. And we know that he's performed miraculously in our lives. And then, in a time of trial, in a time of trouble, all of a sudden it seems like God is not responding. It's just not there. And it makes the sense of the loss more acute. We've already said that Job understands this. Job 13.24, why do you hide your face from me and count me as your enemy? The second phrase David uses is, how long will you hide your face from me? That's a Hebrew idiom meaning rejection, turning your back on someone. David feels like God has rejected him. And in verse 2, David talks about his, his struggling. The word uh, take counsel suggests that David is having kind of a battle within himself. And one sense of the word is rebellion. And it may be that David is struggling with whether or not to believe God. The pain that God's apparent rejection is causing David to wonder if God cares for him as much as he used to believe he did. Have you ever thought that? And then David talks about the sorrow that he has. David's wondering about God's care for him. David's sad that God, the God he loves, and he serves apparently has left him alone in his trial. Sorrow also goes to what appears to be the exaltation of David's enemies, perhaps Saul. And it's easy to understand sadness, the sadness in David. Maybe David's thinking, God, how can you allow this? How could you allow God, or excuse me, how can you allow Saul to exile me and pursue me, to kill me? God, you promised that you would make me king. Didn't you? God did have Samuel anoint David to be king. 
And God took the extraordinary step at the time to fill David with his Holy Spirit. You find that in 1 Samuel 16. But in the face of Saul trying to kill him and God's ignoring him for so long, it may, be, it may have been hard for David to remember this anointing. Perhaps David thought he may have gotten it wrong. Or maybe he only dreamed it. Or maybe the anointing was false. I wonder if you've had those kinds of thoughts. It's this kind of thinking that can happen to believer in hard circumstances. We may begin to doubt that God, that what God said or what he's done in our lives not, didn't happen. Or maybe God didn't say that. Maybe I misunderstood God. Maybe I just got it wrong. Maybe God's just going to allow me to rot. Elijah thought that. 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah says, Speaking to God, I have been very, very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. When Elijah said this, this was right after, after he experienced a miraculous victory by God over the prophets of Baal. And here Elijah is whining. In Spurgeon, when he, in his sermon on this passage, he, he suggested that perhaps this part of the, of the psalm is a photograph of you. Perhaps, he, perhaps David's experience is something that reflects, has reflected your experience from time to time. And then David prays, verses 3 and 4, Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is David's request. This is the actual strict, if you will, prayer where he, where he asked of God. The first two verses were just a lament of his condition. But here he makes the request. When David prays in the Psalms, he often prays with great passion and emotion. This is comforting for us because we can see that God accepts or even, and even welcomes our passion and our emotion in prayer. God's not offended by our cry or by our anger or by our fear or by our feelings of abandonment. But David does something here that's not usual. David yells at God. The words... Translated consider, answer, and light, or light up, are what we call imperatives. In other contexts, such words are understood as commands. For example, in Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The words fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and dominion are all imperatives. In Scripture, such words are typically used to direct God's people to a desired behavior. Yet here, the imperatives, the commands, if you will, are directed at God. And then consider the words themselves. The word consider means to see or look. If we were going to use a modern vernacular, we might say something like, see me. The sense of the word is to pay attention to me. It's look with several exclamation points behind it. Isaiah 63, 15, Isaiah says something similar. He says, look, 
speaking to God, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Isaiah had the same kind of feeling. Second word, answer, is a common Hebrew word, and in this context, it's a demand. I, uh, I think of an experience that I think every parent has probably had with a child. A child has done something wrong, and you're sitting down with the child, you're, the child, and you're trying to you know, figure out what happened and why the child did this, and you say to the child, why did you do this? The child just kind of has his head down, not responding, not saying anything. You go, why did you do this? Still nothing. And you get frustrated. You go, answer me! And the child says, I don't know. But this expression, answer me, it's a demand in the psalm for God to respond. Job, again, says something similar. In Job 31, 35, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He calls God his adversary there. And then the word light or light up simply means light, but in this context means to revive or to restore. For David, in this psalm, it means to keep him from death. David's not just calling a God to hear him, he's calling a God to keep him alive. Ezra says something similar in Ezra 9.8. He says, for now, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown to us, shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. The NLT translates that phrase, revive the sparkle in my eyes. You put all this together. This demonstrates the cry of David, who's in, in, in an intolerable situation and has been for some time, and he's desperate for God to act, thinking that God has abandoned him. My God, look at me. Answer me. Give light to my eyes, or I will die. In some psalms, David combines his plea for deliverance with an appeal to God's love as a motive for him to act. David does not appeal to God here. doesn't appeal to God's love as a motive to save, to save him. David just yells at God to save. Have you ever yelled at God, even if the yelling was just in your mind? And David's plea here is that if God does not respond, his enemies will rejoice because they will have prevailed over him. This is a very personal, very self-centered prayer. And that may not be a bad thing. David can only see what's right in front of him. If God doesn't act, it's all over. And he uses the word shaken here, and that word could be translated upended. And the idea is that without God, David will fall. And it's not just a falling down where he can get up again, but it's a final fall from which he will not recover. There are times in our lives where we may feel this sense of hopelessness before God. We can only see our narrow life and circumstances, and we can only see that our life and circumstances are dire and unfixable unless God intervenes. Have you felt that? I have. And in his sermon on uh, this psalm, Charles Spurgeon referenced a fellow named Rabshakeh. 
I know that name is completely familiar to you. It wasn't to me. But I found out that fellow is referenced in Isaiah 36. And if you remember, Isaiah 36, uh, the Assyrians have come up against Jerusalem to siege it. They have been uh, overrunning the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, The passage says that uh, they have taken all the fortified cities, and now they're here at Jerusalem at the walls with a great army. The Bible records that the army's uh, something over 100,000 men. And by this time, Israel, Judah, doesn't have much of an army left. They're just behind the walls of the city. And you don't need to turn it to, and I won't, it won't be up on the screen here, but I do want to read some portions of Isaiah 36. I'll kind of jump around a little bit to give you an idea of what's happening here. Rabshakeh could be a name or it could be a title. But the passage says, And then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. But you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? Moreover, is it without the Lord, without Yahweh, that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? This is a mocking taunt by this fellow. He's taunting Hezekiah, and he's taunting the people in Jerusalem. He's saying, you don't have any ability to resist us, which is true. But he goes on to say, you know, it's not, your trust in Yahweh isn't, isn't useful because Yahweh told me to come and destroy you. What a mocking taunt that is. If you want to find out what happened, read Isaiah 37. I'll let you do that. And then singing, where David remembers. Verses 5 and 6, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is odd. It's not odd because of what he says, but it's odd because he goes from verse 4 to verse 5 with a complete change of attitude, a complete change of thinking. There's no transition between the two verses. David is yelling at God, and all of a sudden he's saying, I'm trusting you, God. So what accounts for this change? He goes from despair, facing death, nowhere to go, nothing he can do about it. How does this happen? Two things seem to combine to make this abrupt change. First, David decides, or he more likely remembers, to trust God. Most translations either have something like, but I have trusted, or but I trust. The first suggests a past trusting that the psalmist applies to today. The second suggests an ongoing trust that may waver from time to time, but remains ultimately trusting. 
The verb is a Hebrew perfect, which usually means that the action of the verb is completed. But while it is a Hebrew perfect, usually in the past tense, it can also be present or future tense. It seems here that the psalmist remembers that he has committed to trusting God or that he had committed to trust God. And having remembered that, he now commits again to trusting God, even in these circumstances. And secondly, the object of the psalmist trusts not just in God, but what the psalmist knows to be God's character toward his people, toward those who trust him. That character is expressed in the Hebrew word hesed, God's everlasting, steadfast, faithful, loyal love to his people. Psalm 136 says, For his steadfast love endures forever. David remembered God's love is certain and unwavering. He remembered that God's love is perfect and everlasting. Therefore, God will provide deliverance. God will provide his salvation. David remembered that God had delivered him before, and he will do it again because he is faithful. Isaiah 54, 7 and 8 expresses God's heart toward his people. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I should say at this point that the context, of course, for this passage in Isaiah is the rebellion of God's people, their idolatry, and their rejecting of God. <clears throat> for us, because of Jesus Christ, it's, it's a little different. God's anger against us is gone. It was satisfied on the cross, but his heart is the same. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So it's because of God's steadfast love, his hesed, that he's able to rejoice, to praise, to sing about God's deliverance, which hasn't happened yet. And then we get to verse 6. David rejoicing takes the form of singing to the Lord. David will sing. Because God has dealt bountifully with him. Bountifully is the Hebrew word gamal. Many translations will translate it here as good, saying God has been good to me. The word suggests a vindication or a deliverance. <clears throat> and like the word trusted in verse 5, the word is a Hebrew perfect. Some translations suggest a past event. Others suggest an ongoing condition. Every believer has a basis for trusting God when things are bad. That trust is found in the remembrance of how God has dealt with you in previous times of hardship. More than that, you have the record of the trust you placed in God at your salvation. You have the fulfilled promise that because of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That trust has proved true, and that trust has led to your deliverance from the power of sin. God has vindicated your trust in him, and he has delivered you. He will deliver you again. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen carefully. And you were dead in the, trespass, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only has God saved us from sin, not only has saved us from the world, but in this passage, he has made us alive to go together with Christ. He's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The language of this passage is, suggests that this is a done deal. It's already happened. We haven't realized it yet, but it's done. That's how faithful God is to us. So, remember. As David remember, remembered, Psalm 13 encourages, uh, encourages us to remember. I ask you to recall a time when you cried, How long, O Lord? I wanted to bring to your memory a time when, you may, when it may have seemed like God hid his face from you. Do you remember the anguish? Do you remember feeling like God has forgotten you? Do you remember that the sorrow and what seemed like there was no way out, there was no remedy? Did you yell at God? And then I also asked you to recall a time when God had delivered you, when he, where he delivered you when you cried, How long, O Lord? Do you remember your amazement at what God had done? Do you remember the joy at your deliverance? Do you remember singing at God's deliverance? Have you ever sung about God's deliverance before it happened? When it comes to those times where it seems that your circumstances have left you alone and apart from God, that he has forgotten you, I encourage you to remember. God has not forgotten you. The God who gave his own son to take the punishment for your sins will not forget you. God has not abandoned you. God has not left you alone. I encourage you to remember that God has delivered you before, that God has shown his has said his steadfast love to you. And perhaps most importantly, to remember that God has already delivered you from sin. He has delivered you from his wrath and from an eternity separated from him. He has made you a child of his and a co-heir with Christ, and all that remains for that to be fully realized is Christ's return. Times of great trial and suffering, I encourage you to remember that God has been good to you, that he has dealt bountifully with you and that he will deal bountifully with you for as long as you're on this planet and into all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we all have times of trouble and trial. We all have times, Father, where it just seems agonizing to go on and on in this time where it seems like you're not there, where it seems like you don't hear us, where it seems, Father, like you're ignoring us. We've all had that experience. I pray, Father, that you'd, in those times, cause us to remember. Help us to remember, Father, first of all, that it's okay to 
have this pain. It's okay to be in anguish. It's okay to yell at you if that's what we need to do. But help us to remember that you have delivered us. That there have been times in our, in our past where we've gone through things and you have delivered us. You have taken us through them. You have uh, removed the trial. <clears throat> and we remember, Father, how much we praised you because of that. Help us to remember those times when we're in trial. But, Father, also help us to remember that you have saved us and the great love, Father, that you brought to us when you did save us. Help us to remember that, Father, when we're in trial and in trouble. And while we may cry at you, while we may howl at you, while we may yell at you, Father, take us through that and cause us to sing to you in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.